We are continuing this morning in our parallel study that we've slowly been working through in the book of Hebrews. Uh, Today we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 7 verses 1 through 10 where our author begins to tell us a little bit about this mysterious figure named Melchizedek and why Melchizedek is important for understanding the person and work of Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me there. The text is again uh, Hebrews 7 verses 1 through 10. Um, If you have pew Bibles, that's on page 1004 in the pew Bibles. And hear now the word of the Lord. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version, the ESV. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers." though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In in one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is the word of the Lord. But earlier this week, I uh, came across an article that discussed how marketing strategies, marketing strategies that a number of various companies employ, put a lot of emphasis on what they call nostalgia advertising during times of crisis. Uh, This is what happened after September 11th, 2001. This is what happened during the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009. Uh, Now, nostalgia, if you're asking yourself what that means, refers to the desire or the yearning to return to a former time or place in life, a time and place when things might have seemed a little easier or more secure. And so when the present world seems uncertain, when the present world seems tumultuous, nostalgic advertising is employed to tap into that longing we have of the past, to remind us that there was something that was with us in the past, something that has endured us into the present, and something that can provide stability for an uncertain future. And then the advertisements tell us to, you know, shop uh, shop at Home Depot or something like that. Well, in our passage this morning, our author does something similar in arguing for the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Now, to give some background, and you may recall some of this from our previous uh, weeks in the book of Hebrews, you may recall that our author has been writing throughout Hebrews to a people who in the middle of the first century AD are going through something of a theological crisis. There are persuasions concerning persuasions that would have them throw in the towel on Jesus Christ and the gospel and revert back to the pre-Jesus Judaism that they once embraced. 
And yet our author wants to be clear throughout the entirety of Hebrews that to go back to those institutions of temple and bloody sacrifices that were offered day in and day out, even when the pressures to retreat from Jesus are so potent in their own day, that wouldn't bring about more security. In fact, to return to those systems of temple and bloody sacrifices would cause them to miss out on the better security of everlasting life found in Jesus Christ and Him alone. But now in continuing His mission of of, of upholding the supremacy of Jesus Christ as the one to whom all of these previous institutions pointed to, our author goes back even further in history. We might say that he engages in a nostalgic argument of his own to undercut their own nostalgia for temple and sacrifices, though to be sure, his argument is far more robust than that. Instead, our author goes back to the days of the first patriarch, to the days of Abraham, before those priestly institutions of a formal temple and bloody sacrifices ever came on the scene. And he does that in order to argue that Jesus's ministry isn't some new or novel thing to be skeptical towards, not at all. Rather, Jesus's ministry is rooted in eternity past, and it has powerfully endured ever since. And therefore, Jesus's ministry and his ministry alone has the power to preserve us, despite whatever new challenges arise that would seek to undercut our confession, even in our own day. So our big idea this morning is this, the enduring priesthood of Jesus Christ preserves us in the present. If you have your uh, handout that we uh, left in the back and in the parlor, you can kind of see how we're going to be working through this passage. So again, the big idea is the enduring priesthood of Jesus Christ preserves us in the present. It's kind of what we're trying to center this entire sermon around. And then the two points, um, the person of Melchizedek, that'll be the first point, and then the second is the greatness of Melchizedek. If you have that sheet, you can see there's a number of sub-points, too, that we'll be working through as well, but I'll I'll, uh, note when we're uh, proceeding through each of those. So let's start out. First, the person of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek is quite a mysterious figure in the Bible. If you've never heard of him before, um, I wouldn't be surprised at that because he doesn't show up very often. In fact, in the Old Testament, Melchizedek is only mentioned a total of two times. Uh, We hear about uh, this encounter he has with Abraham in Genesis chapter 14, and that'll largely be what we focus on today because that's what our author is concerned about in our passage this morning. But then King David, about a thousand years after Abraham, also reflects upon Melchizedek too in Psalm 110. But as far as the Old Testament is concerned, that's it. Just Genesis 14, four verses in Genesis 14, and then a quick reference to Melchizedek in Psalm 110. Then in the New Testament, there's only one time we hear about Melchizedek, and that's in this passage right now, the passage we're studying in Hebrews chapter 7. So what does the Bible tell us about Melchizedek? Let's start there. Who is this guy, Melchizedek? Well, look with me again at uh, verses 1 through 2, where we read this. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Uh, Now, our author is reflecting here upon something that happened a long, long time ago, a long time before he wrote, uh, about uh, 2,000 years actually before he wrote, way back in Genesis chapter 14. 
Genesis chapter 14. Now, to give a quick summary of just the surrounding context in that chapter, uh, what happens in Genesis 14 is that Abraham is living his life, the patriarch Abraham's doing his thing in Genesis 14, when a war suddenly breaks out around him. And it's a war that involves a number of kings and kingdoms. To be precise, it's a war that involves on the one side an alliance of four kings that's led by this guy named Keter Laomer. Say that 10 times fast, Keter Laomer. And he fights against an alliance of five kings which involve the king of Sodom. Now, none of this in Genesis 14, when it starts out, has anything to do at all with Abraham. But when the alliance of the four kings eventually defeats the alliance of the five kings, Keter Laomer and his alliance don't just let them retreat into the darkness. No, they chase after the enemies who they defeated in order to slay as many as possible and to get as much spoil of war from them as they can. But along the way, Cheddar Laomer and his armies, as they're pursuing their defeated enemies, they run into Abraham's nephew, Lot. And so they capture Lot and his family, and they take his possessions too. Well, now things are personal for old Abraham, and now he has to get involved. So Abraham acts in Genesis 14. He sends 318 trained men from his household in pursuit of Keter Laomer to get his nephew Lot back, and then he eventually defeats Keter Laomer, brings back Lot and his possessions, and in doing so, he inadvertently helps out the alliance that was defeated with the king of Sodom. Now, this whole story in Genesis 14 is action-packed. It's an edge-of-your-seat kind of thriller. But after Abraham defeats Keter Laomer, he eventually helps out the king of Sodom in the process. He then meets, and it seems to come out of nowhere, and it seems to have absolutely nothing to do with the events that transpire in Genesis 14, but he meets this dude named Melchizedek. Now, the encounter with Melchizedek in Genesis 14 is rather brief. It's only four verses in total, and so I'm going to read it for you. Um, if you want, you can turn with me in the Bible there, but I'm going to read. This is Genesis 14, 17 through 20, and this is the main text that our author is reflecting upon here in Hebrews 7, 1 through 10. So in Genesis 14, 17 through 20, we read this. After his return from the defeat of Keter Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, in isolation from the rest of the Bible, and even in isolation from the rest of Genesis, this seems to be quite random and maybe not all that significant. And yet, King David, well, he seems to sure find a lot of significance in this encounter, because in a psalm about the Messiah, the promised Messiah who would come, Psalm 110, he name drops Melchizedek in the middle of it. Moreover, throughout the, uh, what's called the intertestamental period of time between the close of the New Old Testament and the opening of the, of the New Testament, there was a lot of uh, interesting speculation about just who this Melchizedek was. A lot of people wrote a lot of random things about Melchizedek. And then our author here spends a lot of time on Melchizedek, a whole chapter, Hebrews chapter 7. And so it seems that even though Melchizedek only gets four verses in total and that's it, he's a pretty significant figure. 
So this begs the question, why is old Melchizedek so important in the Bible? Well, if you're following along in your outline, this brings us to sub-point two. That's right, sub-point number two. Why is Melchizedek significant? Well, when we look at verses two through three of our passage, there are four things specifically that our author highlights about Melchizedek's significance. The first, we learn about Melchizedek's function, specifically that Melchizedek is important. Melchizedek is significant because he's both a king, kings are pretty significant, and he's also a priest. Actually, that's the very first thing we learned about Melchizedek all the way back in verse 1, where our author told us that Melchizedek is king of Salem and then priest of the Most High God, if you see that in verse 1. Now, these are functions, priests and kings, that uh, we're, we're not, I think, all that familiar with today, and so we first have to take a step back for a moment and, and to review for a second, what is a king in the Bible And what is a priest in the Bible? Let's start there with some background information. What's a king and what's a priest? Well, for God's people, their kings ruled with absolute authority over God's people. In fact, only God had greater authority. Understand that when we think of kings today, maybe our our minds first go to constitutional monarchs, people like the Queen of England, who really wield very little, if, if any, power at all. But that wasn't how it was back in the day of Israel, not at all. In fact, what the king said in the days of Israel, that went. The king had absolute authority only under God. Only God had more authority. But at the same time, the king of Israel was also supposed to function as a representative of God on earth. So as such, he had to know God's word really well. In Deuteronomy 17, for example, when the, um, when the requirements of Israel's kings are spelled out, it tells us that the king actually had to write down God's law, and he had to rule according to God's law. So he didn't get to do everything that he wanted to do. He had to rule as a servant, as it were, underneath God in heaven. So a king had a lot of authority in Israel, but a king ruled under God and under God alone, and that was the role of a king in Israel. But while in Israel a king represented God, a priest went the other way. A priest represented man. A priest represented the men and women and the children of Israel. Uh, The priest was tasked, among other things, with offering bloody sacrifices in the temple on behalf of God's people in order to deal with the problem of human sinfulness. He uh, was somebody who stood in the gap if you will, between God and man to represent us in our sinfulness so that the wrath of God wouldn't ultimately fall on you and me. And and, and so these are what a priest and a king in Israel were supposed to do. Now, as a brief aside, I, I, I think that when we think of priests and kings today, I think many of us might bristle at that idea. After all, we don't really want a king who might infringe upon our autonomy. We like autonomy. We like our freedoms. And we want a king who gets absolute say over what we get to do and over what we shouldn't do. And likewise, I don't think when we really think about the the function of a priest that we want a priest who might think of himself as holier than thou or as morally superior to us. And so when we really think about these roles in Israel, the role of a king and the role of a priest and what they mean, I think they really cut against many of our modern sensibilities. But the Bible tells us that even though we no longer have kings and priests over the church like Old Testament Israel, I promise you I am not a king, nor am I a priest, nor is Jacob, nor any of the other elders, we still have a king and we still have a priest. 
The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is our king and our great high priest. So how do you respond to that? You see, how we respond to that may indicate whether or not we have far too low a view of God or far too high a view of ourselves, or quite possibly both. You see, the Bible tells us that God in His Word requires nothing short of moral perfection for His people. He requires that all of our faculties, our heart, our head, and our hands be perfectly in line with His commands. And short of that, we are called rebels of God who deserve to die a rebel's death. And yet a priest was instituted by God to stand in the gap and to represent us by offering atoning sacrifices for our sins. And so, friends, to reject Jesus Christ as our priest, if that's maybe where you're at today, let me tell you, that's to assume a far too high view of yourself and of your innate goodness. Understand that apart from Jesus Christ standing in the gap, we will be judged according to our record. And so if you don't know Jesus this morning, is that something that you're prepared for? Similarly, God's Word tells us that we live in a world with a number of different threats, threats that we see, we could call those out by name, but also threats that we don't see. And when people like Daniel in the book of Daniel or people like John in the book of Revelation pull back the veil to show us some of the spiritual forces that really are in our world, it's a terrifying thing. We can't fight our spiritual enemies on our own. We need a king. To reject Jesus then as king would be to think far too highly of ourselves and our ability to contend with forces that the Bible says we are ill-equipped on our own to contend with. But the good news of the gospel is that in Christ Jesus, we have a perfect king. We have a perfect priest, and we're urged in the Bible to embrace Jesus Christ our Lord for who he is because it's a person that we desperately need for our salvation. But when we think about Jesus as our priest and our king, and when we read in our passage about how Melchizedek was also a priest and a king, well, this raises another question for us. And maybe it's a question that's, that's probably not the foremost question on your mind, but it's an important one nevertheless. You see, in the Old Testament, these roles of priest and king, though they were really important roles, were never supposed to be combined into one person. In other words, the same person was never supposed to occupy both functions of a priest and a king. And I think this is probably something that we can appreciate even today from our modern contexts. Uh, you know, some of you may be aware of the fact that uh, in the United States Constitution, it's prohibited for officials of the judicial branch or the executive branch of government to serve simultaneously in the legislative branch of government. Uh, so a United States congressman, for example, couldn't serve on the Supreme Court or as a federal judge at the same time. Uh, the, the so-called importance of the separation of powers in the U.S. system prohibits a scenario like that from materializing. Um, there was a political drama I remember watching a, a couple decades ago where the Speaker of the House, um, who's uh, third in line for the presidency, I heard Jacob talk about this last week, so this kind of fits in with what he talked about last week uh, with uh, the, the U.S. constitutional system. Well, this uh, Speaker of the House, third in line for the presidency, he was thrust into the role of the president when the president was unable to perform his duties and there was no vice president to fall back upon. And in that situation, I, I remember it pretty clearly, the Speaker 
Speaker of the House made it a point to remind everyone that he had to resign from Congress before he was sworn in as the president, because according to the U.S. Constitution, you cannot serve as an officer in both branches of government simultaneously. And this is how things worked in Israel, too. You couldn't have a king who was also a priest. Kings were from the tribe of Judah. There were 12 tribes in Israel. One of the tribes was Judah, and that was the tribe where the kings came from. And then over here, you had the tribe of the Levites, and that's where the priests came from. And there was a separation of powers so that the two never mixed. This is why King Saul, um, the first king of Israel, he was eventually rejected by God because he took upon himself at just one point in his life the function of offering sacrifices before God. Well, that was a big no-no for a king under the Old Testament Mosaic law, and God let him know that was a big no-no. And yet, curiously, we read that Melchizedek here was both a priest and a king. And at no point in the Bible is this treated as a breach of the law for Melchizedek, and certainly at no point is that treated as a breach of the law for Jesus. But in order to hold both roles, a priest and a king, well, we have to assume that Melchizedek and Jesus Christ must be a different kind of priest, must be a better kind of priest. And our author will tell us as he continues just how Jesus and Melchizedek is a better kind of priest, a better priest than the Old Testament priests of, 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 the, of the tribe of Levi. And he'll tell us that in a moment. But for now, we're given the impression simply by reading that Melchizedek was both a priest and a king, that this guy Melchizedek He's unique. This guy, Melchizedek, there's something, there's something about this guy that we should really focus on because a priest and a king, those shouldn't have mixed in Israel. And so we learn Melchizedek is significant because he was a priest and a king. Second, we also learn about Melchizedek's character. Though even though Melchizedek was both a priest and a king, he, he wasn't a man who needed to acquire these offices or these titles for himself to bolster his prestige. Um, some of you may know that right around the time of the Protestant Reformation, that was a big problem in the church. People were buying up various church offices to hold them simultaneously to increase their prestige. But that's not the case with Melchizedek, because we also learn a little bit about Melchizedek's character through his titles. We learn that he, his name means king of righteousness, um, in Hebrew, it quite literally means that because Melech means king and Zadok means righteousness. Put them together, Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. He's quite literally king of righteousness. Then we also learn that he's priest or king of Solomon, which is probably Jerusalem. But the main point there is that he is king of, a king of peace. Now, we might not know much about Melchizedek's devotional life. We might not know anything about Melchizedek's personal relationships in the ancient Near East, but just from his name, we can gather that Melchizedek is a king who pursues righteousness. That is, the right things according to God's standards and peace. These are marks, friends, of a godly king. These are marks that, 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 uh, of a godly king that couldn't be said of so many, of, uh, so many other of Israel's kings who came later in history, and certainly couldn't be said of other kings like the king of Sodom in the ancient Near East. So we learn about Melchizedek's character, a king of righteousness and king of peace. And then third, we learn about Melchizedek's significance when the author tells us about his duration, the duration of his kingly rule and priestly rule. In verse 3, we read, 
He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. Now, as you might suspect, this is a uh, phrase or some comments that have received the lion's share of discussion when people ask questions about just who this Melchizedek guy is. Because it sure seems on a surface reading of this text like Melchizedek must be something of an angel or maybe a a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ, that is a visitation of Christ some 2,000 years before his incarnation. But I don't think that's what this means. Rather, there's actually, I, I think, a much simpler way to understand this description of Melchizedek's duration. When you, when you go to how Melchizedek is described, for instance, in the book of Genesis, if you were to go back to Genesis 14 and read um, those, that text that we just read about how Melchizedek is described, we would see that nothing in that text tells us anything at all about Melchizedek's duration. We don't learn anything about his genealogy. We don't learn anything about father and mother. We don't read anything about his birth, his life, or his death. And so it would seem, according to the book of Genesis, that he has no father or mother or end of days. Uh, Now, this doesn't mean that was actually the case. Our author is probably tapping in here to a common rabbinic practice that highlights what's not said in order to emphasize something else. And in this case, our author seems to be tapping into what's not said in order to emphasize that Melchizedek is is a kind of priest who doesn't depend on who his father was or his genealogy because that was important for the Levitical priests. Their priesthood was hereditary. Your father was a priest, and therefore that authorized you to serve as a priest. But for Melchizedek, he has a priesthood that stands outside the Levitical priesthood. That seems to be the main emphasis here in what it, when our author tells us about these crazy things about no end of life or father or mother. So for as little as as we know about Melchizedek then, based on those three things we said, we can see that he seems to be a pretty significant figure in the Bible and in the book of Hebrews. And yet I haven't even mentioned the most significant thing about Melchizedek yet. In fact, the most significant thing comes at the end of verse 3, where we learn that Melchizedek resembles Christ. And this is really, I think, the key to the entire passage. Notice again in verse 3, our author tells us that Melchizedek, resembling the Son of God, continues a priest forever. Now, this short phrase explains in a nutshell why our author is so hung up on Melchizedek. It's not as if he just wants to tell us this information or a story from a long-ago age when, hey, look, once we had a priest and a king. No, he tells us about Melchizedek and all that's unique about him in order to foreshadow the greater Melchizedek, the greater priest and king, Jesus Christ our Lord. Just as Melchizedek was a priest king, so too Jesus is our greater priest king. Jesus was descended from the tribe of Judah, the the line of kings, just like kings or queens today um, in England have to be from the house of Windsor, so too in Israel, again, to be a king you had to be from the house of Judah. But Jesus is also a priest, but not like the Levitical priests. He's a priest from a much older priesthood, a a priest from a much better priesthood, an eternal priesthood, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And this short reference explains just why Jesus can be both a king and a priest in one person. Jesus is also a priest king like Melchizedek who has no beginning of days nor end of life. 
Again, that's how Melchizedek seemed in the narrative of Genesis, but for Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, He is quite literally a priest who has no end of days or no, or no beginning of days and no end of life. Yes, in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ took on human flesh and incarnation to save us in our sins, but that wasn't the beginning of the second person of the Trinity, nor was His death the end of the second person of the Trinity. Not at all, because there was never a time when the Son was not, and there will never be a time when the Son is not ruling and reigning in the heavenly places as our great high priest and king. And then finally, just as Melchizedek was king of righteousness and king of peace, well, Jesus Christ, friends, He embodies those characteristics better than anyone else. And yet there's also an important order that we have to keep in mind when we think about righteousness and peace. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, throughout world history, um, anytime two nations are at war with each other and, and one of the two sides is ready to lay down arms and surrender, well, we know that there are typically terms that that party has to agree to before the other side will lay down arms too. There, there's terms of surrender that one side has to come to and they have to agree on those. In the United States Civil War, for example, uh, General Grant, he gave some terms of surrender to the Confederate Army where they were required or they were allowed to keep their swords, keep their horses, return home, and on those conditions, the Confederate Army surrendered and they got the peace that they sought. But in other conflicts, in World War II, for example, German and Japanese armies, they had to surrender unconditionally. Um, that is, to get the peace the Japanese and German armies wanted, they had to be willing to do whatever it was that the ally told them to do, and only on those terms would they have peace. In every world conflict, the, the, it, it's a little bit different, but the point is that there are always prerequisites to peace. You don't get peace unless you submit yourselves to the terms of surrender, whatever those terms might be. Well, in the same way, Jesus is the king of priests and the king of righteousness, but the only way to get that peace that Jesus offers is through His righteousness. That's the terms of getting the peace of God. Richard Phillips, citing the, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon, puts it like this, quote, "'Note well the order of these two and the dependence of the one upon the other, for there could be no true peace that was not grounded upon righteousness, and out of righteousness peace is sure to spring up.'" Friends, understand that Jesus Christ offers us peace with God. Now, at the bare minimum, that means that God is no longer disposed to judge us in our sin. He's not going to war against us, though in our sin we are rebels who deserve a rebel's death. But peace in the Bible also means far more than just an absence of conflict. Peace in the Bible often gets at this idea of fullness of life, this idea of living in perfect harmony and relationship with God and enjoying life the way we were created to enjoy life. Peace has both of these negative and, and positive aspects, and Jesus, as the King of Peace, offers both of those to any who would put their faith in Him. But to receive that peace, there are also conditions to receive that kind of peace, we have to be a people who are right before God. That is, we have to live in right relationship with God by obeying the law perfectly, by forsaking any and every idol, not just wooden statues, but also the idols of the heart, 
And then we have to love the Lord perfectly with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And on those conditions, we'll receive peace. But that sounds kind of daunting, doesn't it? Well, in fact, it's not just daunting, it's impossible. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is also the King of Righteousness. That is, Jesus Christ succeeded where we have failed. He lived a perfect life all the days of His flesh on earth, and because of Christ's perfect record of righteousness, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, well, we receive Jesus' record. It's imputed to us. It's given to us as if it were our very own. And so, how is peace with God possible in this earth? How is the ultimate peace that we need for life and godliness among a world gone mad even possible on earth? Well, it's possible only when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the true King of peace and true King of righteousness. So, brothers and sisters, look to Jesus Christ to be your righteousness and your peace. So we learn a lot about Melchizedek's significance in our passage. We see how all of these things that are said about Melchizedek point us ultimately to the better king and the better priest, Jesus Christ our Lord. But now in the second part of our passage, and this will take us into the second point, we see how our author begins to set Melchizedek's significance, his greatness, in contrast with the Levites. So this leads to our second point, the greatness of Melchizedek. And beginning here in verse 4, our author begins to contrast everything he said so far about Melchizedek compared to the Levites to show that Melchizedek and ultimately Jesus Christ, the one Melchizedek points to, is, is greater than the priestly system that our author's audience was tempted to revert back to. And the first thing we learn about why Melchizedek is greater than the Levitical priests is because he received tithes from Abraham. Now, to pay tithes to somebody in that day was essentially to recognize somebody else's authority. And so, what we find here is Abraham recognizing the authority of Melchizedek as his superior. Uh, Now, neither Hebrews nor Genesis tell us very much about why Abraham was prompted to give tithes to Melchizedek, but our author in Hebrews does tell us the significance of this tithe. First, he tells us that, like Melchizedek, the Levites received tithes too. But here's where the twist comes. In verses 9 through 10, our author, he he reflects upon this story of Genesis in Genesis chapter 14 and how Melchizedek received these tithes from Abraham, and he tells us this. He says, one might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. You see, while both Melchizedek and the Levites received tithes in history, that the Levites received a stipend to live off of, and here we learn in Genesis 14 and in Hebrews 7 that Melchizedek too received tithes from Abraham, we learn through what our author says here that the priesthood Melchizedek represents is better because Levi's great-grandfather Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, and in doing so, it was as if Levi himself recognized Melchizedek's greater authority too. Let me use an illustration. Um, Like many, many pastors out there, if you know a pastor, you know that we pastors tend to be theology nerds. Um, I'll speak for myself and Jacob. We're both kind of theology nerds. Much of what what I read is is in theology. 
But when I come to a new author or a new theologian, somebody that I've never heard about before, I often do some research to get an initial impression of whether that person I've never heard of before is generally trustworthy. Uh, it gives me some expectations. I want some expectations so that when I open up a new theologian in their book, I, I kind of know what to expect. And so one of the things I'll do in my research is I'll look at the endorsements on the book. You ever seen a book before that has the endorsements on the back and the endorsements in the first few pages of a book? Well, when I get a new book by somebody I don't know, I'll tend to open, look at the back of the book for the endorsements. I'll open up the book and look for the endorsements inside. And if I find endorsements in the book of people that I generally trust, well, I'm also predisposed to trust the person that I've never heard about before, whose books I've never read before. And it means even more to me if I see in the endorsements seminary professors that I had, um, people that I know personally endorsing a given author and their work. In those situations, I, I tend to trust pretty well the person that I'm about to read. Well, there's a sense in which this is our author's tactic too. He wants to show us why Melchizedek's priesthood is a better priesthood, and in making this argument, he draws in Levi because the Levites were the ones who represented the whole system that our author's audience were tempted to revert back to. And so it's as if he's saying right here, you have to understand that the Levites acknowledged the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood through his great-grandfather Abraham. Levi actually endorses Melchizedek's priesthood. And so don't look to the Levitical priest as the answer. Look to Melchizedek's priesthood. And more than that, look to Jesus Christ as the answer. Because if you really start thinking about it in history, they have Levi's endorsement. Now, while none of us on the face, none of us, I think, face temptations in our own lives like the audience of Hebrews faced, we, we often do face the same issues that have the same roots. In other words, just as the, our author's audience were tempted in their own day to treat the Levitical priestly system as kind of an end in itself, rather than seeing how the Levitical priestly system actually endorses Melchizedek and then actually endorses Jesus Christ, well, we do a similar kind of thing too. For example, many of us, I think, are tempted to look to created things to solve problems we face in the present. We look to material goods to solve our problems, or we look to people to solve our problems. But the Bible maintains from start to finish that created things were never intended to be an end to themselves. Just as marriage points to the relationship that Jesus has with His church, so too the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8 that created things actually point to Jesus. The whole created order points to Jesus. And Paul tells us that the creation groans for the redemption of Christ. So you see, like our author's original audience who stopped at Levi, rather than seeing the one to whom Levi pointed to all along, sometimes we do the same thing. We treat created things as an end in themselves rather than seeing how created things themselves groan for Jesus' redemption. Levi and the Levitical priesthood couldn't solve a problem that they weren't equipped to solve, and whatever issues that you're embroiled with right now as you sit in corporate worship and you think about your week or you think about your problems, understand, friends, that created things will not be able to solve those problems either. Instead, look to the thing that creation itself points us to, Jesus Christ our Lord and His salvation. But returning to our text, we also hear that Melchizedek is superior to Levi because Melchizedek blessed 
their great-grandfather Abraham. Understand that throughout the Bible, the inferior person in a relationship always receives blessing from the superior. That's the way blessings go. It starts with a superior, and it's issued down to an inferior. And this is what our author tells us about this relationship between Melchizedek and Abraham, too. He says, it is beyond dispute that the inferior, in this case Abraham, is blessed by the superior, Melchizedek. And what's particularly interesting about this uh, short phrase that we read here in Hebrews is when we think who else in the Bible blesses Abraham. Well, as far as I can tell, the only other person in the Bible that blesses Abraham is God. Now, that's not to say that Melchizedek is a divine figure, but it does tell us about something, something about the one to whom Melchizedek points to, Jesus Christ. Melchizedek acts like God in blessing Abraham, and in doing so, he points us to the one who would follow in his footsteps, the one who is actually God incarnate, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then third, we learn that while Levi's priesthood is a priesthood occupied by mortal men, the same cannot be said for Melchizedek. In other words, everyone from the tribe of Levi eventually died. Every Levite eventually died. Every priest eventually died. And though their numbers were replenished generation after generation, theirs was a ministry of death. The priests died. They offered bloody sacrifices day by day. And we learn elsewhere in the Bible that it's the, the, the old covenant administration, priestly administration, is actually called a ministry of death. But not so with Melchizedek. Again, our author tells us in verse 8, in the one case, ties are received by mortal men, there it's referring to the Levites, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. The Scriptures, again, never record the death of Melchizedek, but that doesn't mean that Melchizedek is, is, is eternal. Rather, the point of highlighting this is to exalt the one that he points to. You see, well, from a literary standpoint, Melchizedek never dies. It's actually true. It's literally true that from, a, from, a, from an actual standpoint that Jesus Christ, our high priest, lives forever. Jesus is even right now enthroned in the heavenly places, interceding for us, praying for us, advocating for us. And Jesus' priestly sacrifice in the fullness of time ensures that like Jesus and only in Jesus, we too will live forever. So what should we take away then from everything we've heard, everything we've read, everything we've considered about Jesus and Melchizedek. Well, for today, I have one takeaway, one application for us, and it's this. Trust that Christ's priestly reign is eternally sufficient. Trust that Christ's priestly reign is eternally sufficient. Our world, by and large, tends to solve problems by looking to new solutions. And sometimes this isn't bad. After all, we all know that innovation is good and necessary when you face problems that you've never faced before, or you're looking for a more efficient solution to an age-old problem. Um, new solutions in and of themselves aren't bad, but there are other times when we try to solve problems that aren't intended to be solved that way. For example, how many times have we seen neighbors or people we love, maybe even people in our own family, end difficult marriages in order to find a new companion who they wrongly think will satisfy them in a way that the previous companion was unable? Or how many times have we seen people slowly slip in their confession of Christ by embracing more and more the new narratives that our world promotes as truth? 
Understand that temptations always spring up in our world that would seek to challenge the truth claims of the Bible, either directly or indirectly. There are always temptations, new temptations, to look past Jesus to solve problems that are only ever designed to be solved by Jesus. And yet, when we remember that Christ is ruling and reigning in the heavenly places, when we remember that Jesus Christ anchors us from heaven, that He intercedes for us in heaven, and that His rule and reign never wavers, even though we very often do, well, I think only then can we begin to appreciate and learn how to live a life of faithful plodding along in Christ, despite whatever new waves that the world throws our way. You see, though we are rocked in a number of ways in this fallen world, always tempted to water down our confession of Christ or our commitments to Christ and His church, we have a great high priest whose rule and reign has endured through it all, whose rule and reign will endure through it all, and who holds us through whatever comes our way on this earth. Brothers and sisters, find your security not by frantically looking to change your circumstances or situations on this earth. Find security not by looking to created things, things that will perish, but find security by faithfully holding fast to the one who faithfully holds us fast, the better Melchizedek, the eternal Melchizedek, Jesus Christ our Lord. Pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You that despite this mysterious figure in Melchizedek who shows up and then disappears as soon as he came, that You still have important things to teach us through things that we might consider on the surface really unimportant in Your Bible. We thank You that Melchizedek helps us understand the priesthood of Jesus Christ, how He can be both priest and king at the same time. And more than that, we thank You, Lord, that through Melchizedek's priesthood, a priesthood that, that Jesus Christ occupies in the heavenly places, we are held secured despite whatever new temptations arise on this earth. Lord, would You remind us that, especially when the waves uh, that, that overcome us in this world seem so strong and potent and powerful, would You remind us that there is one who holds us fast and one who we can look to as our hope despite whatever it is that we face. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.